So last week we started our series, Are You Crazy Enough to Change the World? And uh, we had the opportunity to talk with Susan Risman about how personal change has to happen first in order for any sort of change to ripple out, that it's our responsibility to be able to do that. And so today we're going to focus a little bit about what happens with um, stuff we don't let go of and stuff that we never bother to restore. It's mistakes that we sometimes make and then in doing those mistakes, we never really reconnect. Uh, I love this quote, I'm sure it was written by my mother, it says it's William, if you want to change the world, do what? Yeah, my mother was one of those people that said, you make your bed every day. She also said, you make that bed, you're gonna lie in it, which I knew what that meant as well. So we start by changing not only ourselves in order to change the world, to be crazy enough to change our sphere of influence, but also to be able to change systems, to be able to look at things that need some sort of restoration, something that needs to be reconciled in our world. And that's an important part of being the change we want to see in the world, is making sure that happens. We live in a self-cleaning world. You must clean up after yourself. I find that we don't do this particularly well. We don't. Think about it. I just watch what goes on in the kitchen downstairs. Um, but I'm talking about other stuff too. You know, when corporations don't do the right thing for people, we don't clean up the mess. Or political systems that begin to poke at each other instead of realizing that they have to learn to work together for we, the American people. That those are the messes that you and I get to really clean up after ourselves, that we get to really make sure that whatever we have done, we're in integrity with it as well. This is why conflict avoidance is unhealthy and a way to deal with problems. And one of the pieces that I think has to happen for us to be able to change the world and to be crazy enough to do it is we have to be willing to deal with problems that are uncomfortable to us. So we have conversations where hurt has been, where maybe we have offended somebody or they have offended us in the process. What I know is you can't change the world if you don't clean up messes. What I know is they simply follow you. Have you not noticed this? When you don't clean up your mess from your first marriage, you get to repeat a second marriage with the same mess. And then you go to the third marriage and the fourth marriage and the mess is the same. And the real key is really cleaning up our messes, taking ownership for that which we have done or haven't done in our own lives. So don't kid yourself, a conflict is never about a surface issue. It's about one's unsaid, untreated, unhealed wounds. It's what it's about. It's having the courage as individuals and as a society, to heal. To be able to reach out and do things that are really amazing. Your life does not get better by chance. It gets better by what? It's the only way it's going to happen. It's the only way it's going to be happening. Sometimes your heart needs more time to accept what your mind already knows. I'm reminded of a couple that I was uh, very good friends with when I was a young priest in, uh, back in Vermont. And it was a couple who, um, whose little daughter, who happened to be 11 years old, got raped and got killed. 
Never forgot it. They were musicians in my church. And it was amazing the struggle they had in trying to take Christian values, one in particular called forgiveness and be able to forgive. And for a long time, I noticed that their music was shriveling up and everything seemed to be shriveling up in their life. And one day, the wife met with me and said, listen, we have got to forgive this guy because I can't live with this. She, I can't live with the pain. She just can't do it. And he was in a prison not far from Windsor, Vermont, a, media, a medium security prison. It's where he was. It was his first time offense. So we decided, uh, she and I, that we were going to see if we could arrange. And at the time, I was a chaplain in that particular facility. So I met with the man who was incarcerated for this crime first. And I told him, I said, this couple wants to meet with you and they want to forgive you. And he said, well, what if I don't want to be forgiven? I said, well, you have failed to realize this isn't about you. It's about them. And what I'm asking you to do is I'm asking you to just be present to hear them out. And so about a month went by and then he came to me one day and said he was willing to meet with this couple. Never forget walking into the area where we were, and there he was sitting with his head down. And she went up to him and took his hands and said, the only reason I'm forgiving you is because I can't carry this anymore, and I'm giving it back to you. The man <clears throat> opened his hands, took it from her, and began to sob. And he cried and he cried. And the couple were just standing by him with their hands on his shoulders. By the end of our time together, he apologized. And said, I'm, I'm so sorry. And that's part one. Part two is this couple, courageous as they were, began to visit him and established a relationship with him, only to find out that when they looked at his background, you get to see the steps of why he landed where he landed. Most of us will not have to do something that large. But most of us will be asked to do something. I know that there is a situation in your life right now that as I am speaking, it pops up for you. Something that needs restoration. Something that needs justice. And in the midst of it, the only way we can be free is to clean up our messes. What I know is if you see every adversity, every disappointment in a new light, it's not there to defeat you, it's there to make you better. I can tell you that that couple became more loving, more open, and more vulnerable in life than they ever thought was possible. But it took the step forward to be able to let it go. You are imperfect. Surprise. You are wired for struggle. But you are worthy of love and belonging. Everybody is. Everybody is. 
we're also wired for goodness. We're wired for forgiveness. We're wired for reconciliation. And we're wired to live a life of peace. All of us have that capability. All of us get broken in some way, but what really matters is how we get back up and put the pieces back together. So this morning, I'm going to ask you to think of something in your life that needs restorative justice, something that needs pieces put back together in order for you and I to be whole, in order to be okay. Grace means that all your mistakes now serve a purpose instead of serving shame. So much shame goes on on our planet. In seminary, uh, Catholic seminary, we used to talk about grace. You know, that's the, what the Holy Spirit gives you. And uh, the professor wanted us to understand that you don't have to earn it. So he always said, grace, she's free and easy. And, um, <clears throat> and we forget that because we live with shame. We live with all kinds of things in our lives. And yet the real key is to understand that grace is a purpose for moving us out of shame into redemption and into joy. You know, our current justice system has no provision for restorative justice in which offers confronts the damage that they have done and tries to make it right for the people that they have harmed. Instead, our system of corrections is about an arm's length revenge and retribution all day and all night. There's something wrong. We are the largest free world in the country and the most wealthy, and we have the most amount of people in prison. Will they ever get another chance for peace of mind? So this morning, you know that every week in June, I'm inviting a guest who has the audacity to change their world. So let's see who's at the door today. Well, it's Pete Lee. Pete Lee, come on up here. Have a seat. Pete and I met four years, I think it's four years ago now. Four years ago, uh, this man, somebody had told me about Citizens Project, and they were having an annual breakfast, and I sat next to Pete Lee uh, at his table. I had no idea what Citizens Project was or, or any of those components. And so I sat next to Pete Lee, and I was so blown away that we have an organization in Colorado Springs that stands for Equality, Diversity, and Separation of Church and State. I was just blown away that how did this happen and what did it happen? So Pete, you were kind enough to uh, sit next to me, and then I was bugging him and asking him questions. And I made a mistake. I said, how does one get involved with this organization? <laughs> and what happened, Pete? Well, the rest of the story is that Norm uh, joined the organization and then became chairman of the board in short order and then took the organization to higher levels and further heights than we had anticipated it. But the organization continues to thrive in Colorado Springs and is having its next um, creating community breakfast this Tuesday. And we expect to have close to 800 people from around the community there 
Uh, it used to be a pretty small group of like-minded individuals, but we reached out, and now there's people from all over the community, all political, religious, um, business world that come to create community on one day of the year. So recently, um, Pete had invited me to do the prayer um, at the state senate, and I, you probably saw me put it on Facebook. It was such an eye opener for me. Uh, I had never been. How many people have been in our state house during an actual session? Yeah, look at this. So it was. I'm, I was right with you. I had never been there, and I was blown away by the cooperation and by the um, the energy in the room was palatable and the excitement for the people in Colorado. So I did the prayer, and at the end of the prayer, Pete said, why don't you come sit with me? So I went over and sat with him near his desk, and, uh, and you gave me a tour of the, uh, of the state cap. It was amazing, absolutely amazing. So Pete, I want you to address, because I was surprised about the cooperation that's going on, because we get a different story in the press about uh, how the organization, you know, how the state senate really works, and when I got there, I found out that was not true at all, that there were not these separate um, pieces. So tell us a little bit about what really goes on and the cooperation that goes on. Sure. Um, well, first, at the outset, remember that the, the government, the legislature, belongs to you, the people. You know, we that are the elected representatives are temporary occupants of the chairs, but you are really the owners of the system. So I invite all of you to come up. The... Uh, Colorado legislature meets from January to May. It's constitutionally established as a 120-day session, and uh, we meet during that period of time and consider legislation brought by the individual legislators, but it's free and it's open, and you're, uh, you can find the agendas online. You can come up and testify in support or opposition to bills, and the more of that you do, the better the outcome of the work. Um, so the Colorado legislature is a mirror of the federal legislature. We have two houses. We have a Senate and a House. The House has uh, 65 members. At present, there are 41 Democrats and 24 Republicans. The Senate is 35 members, so a total of 100, 35 members. And this year, the uh, Democrats took control of the Senate by a vote of 19 to 16. So we have control of both the Senate and the House. Um, unlike the Senate and the House in Washington, we really do, as Norm Witness, get along very well. There's only 100 of us, not 560 of us. And we meet for 120 days and we enact legislation. This past legislative session, we uh, considered during 120 days, 600 bills and during that time, we passed 462 of them. So a vast majority, yeah. So that is an applause line. 462 out of 600 is 77%, uh, I think. And uh, of those bills, 95% had bipartisan support. So they weren't, yeah. So the concern that we read about it in the newspaper in, in uh, Colorado Springs that the Democrats are going to overreach because they control both branches of government, well, that narrative is, is flawed and it's incendiary and it's not accurate. 
we get along with the Republicans, we work with the Republicans, and we uh, passed with Republican support 95% uh, of those 462 bills. Thank you. Yeah, that's important to know. And I was, I was amazed when I spent the day there, the cooperation that was going on on both, um, both parties. And to be able to just be there said to me, where, are we, where do we get this misinformation about people not working together and not, not really doing it? Because the numbers don't hold it. The other piece that I have loved, uh, Pete, since the first time I met him, um, is you have a passion in a different area that I have found absolutely fascinating. And you and I have had many conversations about it. And Pete is involved in an area called restorative justice. So I've been a lawyer as, uh, my, throughout my professional career. Um, I was both a business lawyer and a criminal defense lawyer. Actually, I have a background in the business world. I went to the Wharton School and I worked for two Fortune 500 companies before um, coming into a uh, law practice. And um, I practiced part of the time doing business law, but then I was also intrigued with the criminal justice system and got deeply involved with that, representing indigent clients um, as, like a public defender. I would be appointed to represent them. What I found after working in that system for not very long was that the uh, criminal justice system was a system of recycling dysfunctionality. Um, some people that I worked with got it. They acknowledged that they had done something wrong. They paid their price and they moved on with their lives. The vast majority of people that I represented and again, these are poor people, indigent people who are committing crimes, um, would recycle through the system. And they would you know, get on probation, and then they would uh, make mistakes on probation. They would then go down to the Department of Corrections. They'd come out of the Department of Corrections, and they would um, commit crimes again and go back to the Department of Corrections. Fact, 50% um, of the people who get out of the Department of Corrections go back to the Department of Corrections within three years. Well, my analytical businessman's uh, brain says if our company were putting out a product and 50% of those products were coming back as defective, we would change the business model. We would do something differently. And I was familiar with the process of restorative justice from a juvenile program that I'd worked in. Restorative justice is a different way of looking at the criminal justice system. The retributive uh, system that you're accustomed to asks three questions. What was the crime? Uh, who committed it? And what's the statutory penalty for the crime? In restorative justice, we ask, what is the harm that was done? And how do we repair the harm to the uh, victim and to the community. The underlying principle is that we are all in community and when an offense is committed, it's a breach of that relationship. It's a breach of the social contract between the individual who committed the offense and the victim and a breach of the contract between the individual who committed the offense and the community. And the way to remedy that is to repair the harm. 
So the vehicle that we use in restorative justice is what we call a victim-offender dialogue. And when I first heard about it, I was aghast at the idea of actually bringing victims and offenders together in the same room to talk about what the offense was. I've been to hundreds of those conferences over the years. Here's what happens. The offender, the person who committed the offense, is pre-screened by the facilitator to determine if they accept responsibility for what they did. Absolutely mostly do. Think of the things that you have done wrong in your life. Most of those things you can say, I did it, I feel bad about it. Most people accept accountability and that's universal. Except in the cases maybe of psychopaths or sociopaths or those rare instances, most people accept accountability for what they did. Second, we determine in the pre-conference if they're accountable and have contrition, if they feel bad about it. And third, are they willing to do something to repair the harm? If they meet those preliminary tests, uh, we give them an opportunity to meet with the victim voluntarily. No one's forced to do anything in restorative justice. So a trained facilitator meeting with a willing victim and a willing um, offender with members of the community sitting in a circle to talk about what happened. And as Norm indicated, we need to get to the root of the problem. When someone commits an offense, there's usually something going on beneath that. What we find in the criminal justice system is most people who commit offenses have been victimized the vast majority of them. Uh, you walk into the juvenile justice system, the detention facilities, virtually every one of those kids has been victimized or brought up in a household where they have adverse childhood experiences, alcoholism, or drug addiction. So in the victim-offender dialogue, the facilitator typically asks the victim if they want to hear from the offender first or if they want to talk first. Most victims want to hear from the offender so the offender describes what they did and why they did it, and then they're questioned about it. The next stage is that the victim has the opportunity to describe the impact that the offense had on them. For most victims, that is the power of the conference. For most offenders, when they're committing the offense, they're not thinking about the impact on a human being. They're thinking about the act that they want to do. But when they hear from the victim the impact of it and that they have hurt a living, breathing, sentient human, it is impactful and for many it creates in them empathy often for the first time. When empathy is first felt, that's the beginning of transformation. So that's really the key to why restorative justice works. Offenders begin to walk in the shoes of the person that they've hurt. The final part of the conference is, what are we gonna do to repair the harm that was done? And that is left up totally to the creativity of the people in that conference. And they come up with all sorts of unique things for people to do to repair the harm. Um, typically, and on some occasions, I've seen an offender get up, walk across the circle, stick out their hand to the victim and say, I'm really sorry for what I did. And it's something I've never seen once saw in the criminal justice system 
I saw a victim stand up and look the offender in the eye and say, I forgive you. It is astonishingly powerful stuff. So we did a study on it after we implemented a couple of bills in the legislature and the uh, recidivism rate with kids, a thousand kids in four jurisdictions around the state was under 10%. Wow. Isn't this amazing? It's just such an amazing concept. Um, can you think of any, I know your wife is involved with this as well. Could you think of one situation where you actually experienced it and, and what, um, what does it do to you personally when sure. you see this? Sure, really, really good question. Um, actually, my wife is deeply involved in restorative justice. She's a facilitator and a trainer and actually sits on the statewide Restorative Justice Council, which is the central uh, area in the state which provides education and resources about uh, restorative justice. And she actually was the facilitator of the first victim-offender dialogue in the Department of Corrections in uh, Colorado. And it was one of the most impactful events that any of us have ever been anywhere closely associated with involved a lady who you can Google because she's really taken on this cause as a result of the conference. Uh, Charletta Evans, in the uh, summer of violence in the 90s, lost her three-year-old son in a drive-by shooting in the Park Hill area of Denver. She had gone over to his house to pick him up because, or to pick up her nephews because she had heard that there was gonna be some gang activity and she parked, left her two young boys, um, two and four, in the car and went inside to get her niece. And while she was inside, uh, two members of the Crips gang drove by and sprayed the house with bullets, 21 of which went into the house, 14 of which went into her car, and two of which went into her youngest son, Kason. So she comes back out to the car, drives down the street, her other son says, Mom, something's wrong with Kason. She pulls the car over, lifts up her son, and he's bleeding all over her and died in her arms with a bullet in the back of his neck. She then went home, was in mourning. A couple of weeks later, they found the young men who had done it, two 15-year-olds and a 16-year-old, who ultimately were sentenced under Colorado's draconian sentencing law to life without parole. So 16 years old to go to the department with a sentence where you will never get out. The Supreme Court made changes in that and said you can't sentence people to life without parole. So um, um, Charlotte Evans, who we had connected with through a nonprofit organization, contacted us and said, I would like to visit Raymond Johnson in the Department of Corrections. I want to see what kind of man he has become. So uh, you couldn't do that. Uh, this was before I was in the legislature. So a couple of years later, two years later, I got elected to the legislature and I wrote a restorative justice bill to put restorative justice into the juvenile code, the adult code, the division of youth services, and the division of, of uh, 
of the Department of Corrections and in the schools to reduce suspensions and expulsions. Uh, the bill ultimately, and I could tell long stories of how we got unanimous support in the Colorado legislature for that revolutionary change in the criminal justice system, but uh, it passed unanimously. Charletta Evans said, I want to go visit um, Raymond Johnson. So those arrangements were made, and it took six months of conferences between Raymond and my wife and Raymond or excuse me, and Charletta Evans and my wife to prepare them both. It doesn't happen spontaneously. And let me give a shout out to Van Jones, the Redemption Project, Sunday night, tonight at seven o'clock, you will see restorative justice in the prisons on CNN. So if you have an opportunity to watch it, our concern is, and again, we don't know the background, is there doesn't seem to be enough preparation work being done with the victims and offenders. It takes a lot of that work to, to ensure that it goes well. You don't want to re-victimize the victim. But at that conference that I didn't attend, you can't be visitors at those conferences, uh, but Charletta has told me on occasions what took place. And she said it started out with uh, she asking Raymond if he would say a prayer. And he said, well, I've converted to Islam. Would you like an Islamic prayer? And she said, that would be fine. And she said, he said to her, in English or Islam. So here's a young man who went to prison at 15 who was a self-confessed gang member who was uh, unable to read or write, who had learned in prison a foreign language, calligraphy, and become committed to religion. Um, most of what went on in that dialogue between Charletta and Raymond had to do with Charletta wanting to tell Raymond what Kason, her son, was like. At the end of that conference, she told me a couple of days later, after that conference, I could think about Raymond's life. Before that conference, all I could think about was Raymond's death or excuse me, Kason's death. So before the conference, all I could think about was my son's death. After the conference, I thought about his life. It, it sent chills up my spine. Um, at the end of the conference, she asked the correctional officers if she could touch Raymond. And they said yes. So she went over to Raymond and said, put out your hands, and he did. He puts out his hands, put them, turn them over. She puts her hands on top of Raymond's and said, my wish for you is that you never use these hands for violence again. That was her prayer for Raymond. Um, three weeks later, when they did a, a, a debriefing of the conference, the facilitators asked Raymond if he'd had any um, consequences in the prison about that conference because he, you know, cooperated with the authorities and, you know, sometimes that's sort of frowned upon. And um, she specifically asked, did you get into any fights? And he said, well, I was challenged by a number of people because of what I had done, but I promised Miss Charletta never to use these hands for violence. Today, and I was with Charletta Evans 
two days ago on Thursday out at Lyme and doing a gang uh, intervention project, she said that uh, she and Raymond are in fairly regular communication and that he has given her, she has given him permission to call her mother. So it's Mother Charletta. So, last week we talked about um, being able to change things in our own sphere. Why I asked Pete to speak today is, I want you to see that his sphere is different than ours. Uh, he's in a very unique position to be able to make major changes. And what is it in your heart that, that made you do that? What is it that, what is it that really makes you do this? Well, I was ready to answer a different question, Norm. I bet you were. <laughs> I, w I wanted to tell you how I get um, bipartisan support for uh, the bills that I pass in the legislature and how I sold restorative justice to a... Um, I was going to use the word ignorant. They're not ignorant. They didn't know what restorative justice was. Um, but what drives me to do it? I guess, you know, my sense of fairness and justice and the inhumanity of the criminal justice system that we have in Colorado and in the nation. Um, as Norm said, we are the wealthiest country in the world. I mean, we are really number one, but we're also number one in the number of people that we put in the Department of Corrections. Uh, they measure incarceration rates in, uh, by the number of people per 100,000. The United States is 700 per 100,000. By comparison, uh, England is 100 per 100,000. Germany is like 95 per 100,000. Um, Libya, Pakistan, Syria, you know, dictatorships are in the hundreds and hundreds and 20. So we incarcerate in the United States more than seven times as many people as our peers around the world. Well, Jim Webb, the senator from Virginia, in thinking about that said, you know, there's only two conclusions you can reach. We are either the most evil people in the world or there's something fundamentally wrong with our criminal justice system. I, said Webb, choose to believe the latter. And I choose to believe the latter. We have conscious policies that we have adopted legislatively around the country, um, three strikes and you're out, mandatory minimum sentences, really, really long sentences. We take away judicial discretion. We, you know, engage in, you know, all of these practices where we turn people down for parole and uh, put them back in the Department of Corrections. And it's all conscious policies that we've made. So you can look at it from the standpoint of humanity and justice, or, you know, if you look at it with a green eye shade, you can say it's expensive as hell and we can't really afford it. Um, it costs $40,000 to keep one person in the Department of Corrections for one year. We spent about $7,000 to educate a kid in K through 12. So is it six, seven times more important that we put people behind barbed wire than we educate our children? We're a Tabor state with limited resources. 
We choose by policy how to spend our money. We can educate our children, we can educate our citizens, or we can incarcerate. The Department of Corrections budget this year is gonna hit $1 billion. We spend more on Department of Corrections in Colorado than we do on the uh, Department of Higher Education. So, you know, what drives me is I want to have a more effective, humane, and smaller criminal justice system. I think we do far better altering people's behavior, transforming people's behavior through acceptance of responsibility and development of empathy than punitive retributive measures which have demonstrably failed to r reduce recidivism. So that's what <laughs> motivates me. Can you tell he's passionate about it? Yeah. So what do you leave with us? What can we do? So my plea to you is, as I started out, the criminal justice system belongs to us, the people. The schools belong to us, the people. When they are not working, we must demand that they be changed. I didn't go into the school area. Let me just go in there a little bit. We have these draconian uh, policies in schools where we suspend and expel kids all the time. D11, the downtown school district, has the highest expulsion rate and suspension rate of any school district in the state of Colorado. D11. It, it just doesn't make sense. What we know is suspension leads to dropping out. Kids who are suspended and expelled and are told you don't belong ultimately embrace that thought. They drop out of school. We know this thing called the school to prison pipeline. It starts with kids dropping out. So the bill that we passed, Restorative Justice 1032, provides that restorative justice can be used in school to address any kind of offenses that occur in schools. So I would urge you, if you have relative friends who are involved in the criminal justice system, tell them to ask for restorative justice. Tell them, I want to meet with the offender. Or if, if they're the victim, tell them they want to, to tell the DA they want to meet with the offender and they want to participate in the in the setting of consequences. Colorado has a Victim Rights Act. We're one of the only states in the nation, maybe the only one, that enacted a Victim Rights Act um, by popular vote. It wasn't put in by the legislature, it was put in by the people. So you, as a victim of a crime, have a right to participate in restorative justice. You have a right to meet your victim. If you know of people whose kids are struggling in school, Talk to the teachers, talk to the administrators, talk to the school board members, and insist that they use restorative justice and get rid of these uh, draconian zero-tolerance policies which don't work. They feed the prison pipeline. Um, so let me answer the question that I wanted to answer, <laughs> and, and that was how do, how do we persuade skeptical people to adopt restorative justice? What I did in the legislature was mold the message to the predisposition of the people I was talking to. One of the members of the Judiciary Committee was a libertarian Republican from the Eastern Plains who distrusted all government. 
So before the committee hearing on restorative justice, I said, uh, hey, Jerry, my restorative justice bill is coming up in committee this afternoon. I'd like to talk to you about it. And he's watching the front of the room where the debate's going on. And I said, uh, you know, what would you think of a system where people get to solve their own disputes separate and apart from the government? And he, he turns and looks at me. <laughs> and I said, Jerry, that's what restorative justice is. We refer cases to independent facilitators outside of the court who get the individuals together to work out their disputes on their own and work out a, a restoration or a plan to repair the harm. And he became one of my advocates. To the fiscal conservatives, I talk about the financial savings, how much it costs to put people in prison. To the, uh, to the liberals and the progressives, I talk about building community. I talk about giving people second chances. To the evangelical Christians, I talk about redemption. To the, to the moral conservatives, I talk about acceptance of responsibility and acceptance of accountability. So the, the beauty of restorative justice is it really has something for everyone. It's not partisan. I call it transpartisan because it works. Well, I want to thank you for a couple things. One is um, I'm just so grateful that our paths have crossed. Secondly, I'm just so grateful uh, that you have the courage to reach across aisles and to have a passion for restorative justice. You are busy changing your sphere of influence, and I'm just grateful that you are doing that. So can we thank Pete for being here today? You're terrific. Yes, Wow. Okay. Couple closing notes. Because the minister never gives up the closing. <laughs> <laughs> what I have learned throughout my life is that the weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. Then we actually have the courage to do what Pete talked about today, to restore back wholeness. Our founder, Dr. Ernest Holmes, talks about this in our principles, that when things happen to us in our lives and things aren't whole, perfect, and complete, we have to remember that our natural state of being is to be whole, perfect, and complete. It's to be in the place of wholeness. And that's what restorative justice is about, is allowing people the ability to work through the issues so that they can arrive at a place of wholeness, both for the victim and both for the offender. Restorative justice is not a replacement of retribution justice. It's a complement. It seeks the rehabilitation of the wrongdoer and repair of the victim's journey. It's a powerful piece. We can do it on a small level. We can do it with each other when we offend each other. Our founder, Dr. Ernest Holmes, from our textbook reminds us of something very important. Begin to act as though you already have dominion over evil, as though fear were a phantom, as though everything you have been afraid of were unreal. 
freedom already exists, but your freedom is your own thought. The freedom of God is your freedom. The power of God is your power. The presence of God is in you. The mind of God is my mind, and the strength of God is your strength. To restore anything in life, one must restore the mind in order to receive it. One must open their mind to do it. So my closing thought, read it with me. I stop waiting for the light at the end of the tunnel, and I lit that bitch up myself. Stand, stand and pray with me. <laughs> ah, there is such a power in the universe. That God's spirit. It is found in restorative justice. It is found in the peace that passes all understanding. It is that breath that you and I are breathing at this moment that absolutely knows that peace is possible. Uh, what I know is that I am one with that power, that God essence, that spirit that calls each and every one of us to be crazy enough to change our world, to shift systems, to think differently. So what I know and claim for us this day is that we go forth from this place with restorative justice in mind. I claim and know for us this day that our country and our state is changing because we are the ones to change it. We are the ones to light the tunnel. I claim that for us in every area of our life, whatever needs forgiving, whatever needs being to be restored, and what I claim and know for all victims this day of any type of crime, that an open heart and love becomes the direction. I know that for not only the victims, but those who are the people who have caused the pain. I claim and know for our world that there is one power, one wholeness, one healing, and we tap into it today. We tap into that healing with all those who are struggling in any way with illness. Those who have been hurt in any way. Spirit this day allows healing to occur. I am in such gratitude for the power of Pete. For his yes. For each and every one of us in this space that is crazy enough to change our individual world, I say thank you. So I simply release this prayer unto the universal law knowing the minute I have spoken it, the universe activates, demonstrates, and allows restorative justice to flow like the river it is. For all of this, I say thank you, Spirit. And with one voice, we sing and affirm together. I am the place where God lives and breathes and has its being. I am the place where God shows up. I am the place
we get to circulate our good, our generosity into our community. And I invite those who are watching us online to join us in this powerful unleashing of the law of prosperity. You can do that by simply hitting the donate button, which is right by your screen. So I invite you to take your tithe, your gift in your hand, place it over your heart. Let us pray our affirmation together. I joyfully celebrate the flow of God through me. I am grateful for receiving and giving to my spiritual community. I give thanks, always knowing God is my source, and so it is.